This is the Emperor. You're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. Eat it. Live long and prosper. Bad feelings about this. So say we all. This is going to get pretty interesting. Define interesting. Oh God, oh God, we're all going to die? Only try to realize the truth. There is no spoon. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is episode 89. I'm one of the hosts, Scott Herzog. And hello, I am Miles And we are welcoming you back to snowy Pennsylvania where it is snowing like cats and dogs. Miles is not in the studio and we've been dealing with all sorts of Skype happiness tonight. And uh, it's all good. It's all good. Miles, how in the heck are you doing? I'm doing well, Scott. Good, good. Sci-fi treating you well? It is. Uh, I'm enjoying a Star Trek novel on my Kindle right now. And um, recently uh, I got the uh, – started running off of Netflix, uh, season one of The Big Bang Theory. So getting to enjoy the earlier seasons of that. Ooh, so that watch sounds for three episodes of that. So that's, that's, that sounds good. bonus. I just finished uh, – well, I'm one episode from finishing season six of Next Generation, so – Oh, very good. So, and I'm working my way through Charlie Jade. I'm about 14 episodes in, so I'm totally blowing you away, Miles. But oh man, you, you're kicking me. In the I am. There. I am. So uh, I think we're talking about recording in the next episode of that next week. So you have a little bit of time to catch up, Miles. But, okay. So that Caprica has been good. We watched some of Caprica. Did you finish Caprica yet? Good chance. My wife and I will probably get tonight. Oh, good, good. Okay, well, we'll talk a little bit about that and try not to spoil too much in our listener feedback show. We do have a listener feedback show. If you don't tune into that, where we talk about what you guys, listeners, are all up and talking about, and we'll be talking about some of our shows that we've been watching as well. Well, let's talk about what's on the menu tonight. We have a jam-packed show. We have, of course, our interview with Bob Greenberger, Star Trek author and Wonder Woman and Batman aficionado. And uh, wow, uh, great interview, Miles. Sorry you weren't really with us. According to Skype, it wasn't meant to be. It was not meant to be according to Skype. Not sure what went on, but uh, I ended up doing the interview with him, and we had a good time. And you're coming through fairly, fairly good right now. We'll do it. We'll be announcing our winning trivia, and we'll be giving you our next trivia. And actually, it's not us that will be giving it to you. It'll be Bob Greenberger. He'll be giving you a Batman trivia that you will not want to miss with a prize you will not want to miss. We're going to be bringing you news on Battlestar Galactica Blood and Chrome. We've been kind of talking about this on and off. Um, talking about being human, the season three of Dollhouse. Yes, you heard me right. Game of Thrones and Gandalf, Gollum, and Frodo are back. Ultramarines, it's a, Ultramarines, it's a Warhammer movie that's coming out. Top movies that fans are looking forward to this year. Voyager 1 enters interstellar space and a lightsaber battle that you won't want to miss. And Miles brings us this week in Star Trek, and we do the Sci-Fi 5 and 5 with Bob Greenberger and myself. And that's kind of where the show takes us, so that's pretty full, don't you think? It sounds like a full play. 
it is definitely a full plate. Well, why don't you go ahead and let's get into the trivia. Let's start by, I guess, recapping what was the trivia question that we've had. This has been a trivia question for about a month, right, Miles? Yeah, it, it spawned from a conversation with uh, Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore. And Kevin Dilmore was the one who actually came up with the idea with this. Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, uh, and it really was a good one. And we got a few contestants in that were bold enough to go where no contest has gone before, and that was to sing what, Miles? A, were to locate the lyrics written by Gene Roddenberry for the original uh, Star Trek uh, series, um, and, uh, and locate and sing and, and the lyrics and sing the song. It doesn't have to be the best rendition, but we want you to see if you put the effort into it, and um, you, you just send us an MP3 or flip video of it. Yeah, and this was for uh, like at least a final giveaway for now of what miles? The winner is going to receive a one hundred dollar gift card from ThinkGeek.com, which is an awesome, awesome prize. And we had really good contestants, and we want to you know give a shout out to uh, Ryan. Uh, uh, Osiraman, uh, Radu, and Hearn. Uh, Hearn gets honorable mention for his cat rendition of the song on Twitter. It wasn't actually sung to us, but, um, and who is our winner for this contest? Our winner is, uh, Radu. Radu. We're gonna actually play his track right now. He's gonna hear exactly the, what he sent in to us as he sang the Star Trek theme song to Christmas music. Beyond the rim of starlight, my love is wandering in starlight. I know he'll find in star cluster riches. Love, strange love, love, strange love, a star woman teaches. I know his journey never ends. His Star Trek will go on forever. But tell him while he wanders his starry sea. Remember, remember, thinkgeek.com. Thanks, Radu, for sending that in, and uh, we will get that information over to ThinkGeek so you can order your stuff from ThinkGeek and have it shipped all the way to Van- northern Vancouver, I guess is where you're from. So we'll uh, get that to you and uh, get that sent off in just a little bit. The rest of the entries we'll put at the end of the show so you can hear kind of what they did, and people really laid their I – mean, it took guts to do this, especially if you don't consider yourself a singer. It took guts, and we appreciate every entry that came in. We have a new trivia question tonight, and that trivia question is the following. It actually came from Bob Greenberger, and we're going to have, I'm going to just play what Bob Greenberger said, and this is his trivia for next week. In honor of the 45th anniversary of the debut of the ABC Batman TV series, which of the following villains were original to the TV show and not from the comic books? This list includes the Riddler, the Penguin, King Tut, and Mr. Freeze. And the winner will get an autographed, personalized autographed copy of the Batman Encyclopedia, still available from Deborah Books. So good luck. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for giving that away and giving us that trivia question. So, and this is his trivia, and we'll be, say that this trivia has two weeks. We'll give you two weeks for this trivia. So, Miles, what do you think? A signed copy of the Batman Encyclopedia? I, I think that, I mean, that'd be something I would might own myself. So uh, if you're a Batman fan, you're going to like this. It's, yeah. Uh, it's a keeper. It is definitely. And you have, we're going to give you up until January. It'll be January 25th that you have to 
answer this question and it, to send it into us and then we'll send it to Bob and Bob will send it wherever it needs to be sent. So we appreciate Bob for contributing that. And again, if you haven't heard of Bob Greenberger or know very limited about him, please visit bobgreenberger.com and look him up and uh, support him by buying some of his work. But this is a definitive – if you like Batman, this is a collection you will not want to miss, the definitive uh, encyclopedia of Batman. So very cool. So again, uh, one entry for person. Make sure you email that to us at sci-fi diner podcast at gmail.com. You can also Twitter us, DM us at, at sapphire, at, at sapphire, at the sapphire diner, at sci-fi diner and, uh, get it that way. You can call us at 1-888-508-4343. We appreciate your contributions. We're going to do our first promo of the night and this comes from the Mimo Club. And if you like movies and sharing your opinion about movies, this is the podcast for you. Hello, I'm Dan and this is Lee. Hello. And together we are Lee and Dan's Midnight Movie Club. You see, every week we come together and we review classic popcorn movies of the 80s and the 90s. <laughs> For example, so far we've reviewed Teen Wolf. Which was great. Teen Wolf 2. Which was awful. The Last Starfighter. Which was great. Cannonball Run. Awful. Army of Darkness. Awesome. <laughs> Police Academy. Mission to Moscow. Not so awesome. Worst film in the history of mankind. And Pee-wee's Big Adventure. The second worst film in the history of mankind. So if you want to hear more of our highly intelligent, uh, incisive film critique, come over to midmoclub.com. That's M-I-D-M-O club.com. And check out our podcast. Or you could just type Midnight Movie Club into iTunes. If you have iTunes. Yes. If you don't have it, it'll be harder. That's right. So we'll hope we'll uh, you'll listen to us soon. Uh, to be fair, though, I quite like Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Well, well, you're an idiot. Welcome back to the Sci Fi Diner podcast. We have tons of good news for you about in the TV verse, in the movie verse, in the other verse. And in the twist that we're going to give you tonight, Miles, why don't you start us off with a little bit of blood and chrome? Well, there are some concept uh, pictures for uh, Battlestar Galactic Blood and Chrome, and um, you go, you will post the the site on the show notes. But if you, um, you, you'll see a picture of, uh, I guess it would be some kind of shuttlecraft trying to escape Cylon uh, Raider. There's also pictures of. of Cylons, uh, and it's, granted, this is a conceptual art. This is subject to change, but it's a little bit of a sneak preview. So we get an exclusive look at the first four concept images from Sci-Fi's upcoming two-hour pilot, Battlestar Galactic Blood Chrome. The movie focuses on the adventures of a young William Adama during the 10th year of the first Cylon War. According to the early press release, here's what we have looked forward to. Ensign William Adama, fairly in his 20s and a recent Academy graduate, finds himself assigned to the newest battle star in the colonial fleet, the Galactica. The talented but hot-headed risk-taker soon finds, finds himself leading a dangerous top-secret mission that, if success, successful, will turn the tide of the decade-long war in favor of the desperate fleet. Remember, these are concept drawings, so the scenes they represent may or may not make into the final cut of the movie, but they definitely show some interesting directions being considered for, for what uh, executive producer David Icke calls an authentic, relentless depiction of combat and agony and ecstasy of the human, human sound war, which is a hallmark of Bowser Lockett's early seasons. We're definitely open to Cylon Snake, we're told to a Cython makes the final cut. Ooh, a Cylon Snake. That would be kind of an interesting addition, huh? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. I'm excited for the show. I can't wait for it to come out. Yeah, I don't know. We don't have a uh, due date yet when this is out, but I mean, these are concept images. Nothing's been filmed yet, but man, now that Caprica's gone, I, I, I'm looking for, I oh, mean, and I, we, we continue to hope this, that it becomes a Battlestar Galactica show in the vein of Battlestar Galactica, the most recent incarnation of that. Mm-hmm. So that would be, that would be our hope at least. Right. Um, well, in our next story, you get to meet the bloody hairy ghostly roommates of sci-fi as being human, and we'll embed the video of this in the show notes. But uh, being human is coming out, and you get to take a look at a little bit about some of the characters in a new trailer that explains how the vampire, a ghost, and a werewolf end up as roommates. Meet the vampire, Adian. Aiden, I think it's Aiden. Aiden, I guess it is. Uh, played by Sam Witwer, the werewolf Josh, Sam Huntington, and Ghost Sally, Megan Rath. Three paranormal 20-something roommates living in Boston and struggling with living double lives as they try being human. Hence the title of the show. The show debuts on Monday, January 17th at 9 and 8. At 9 Eastern Standard Time and 8 Central. So uh, is a show that I'm actually debating TiVoing. Uh, Mile, what do you think of this? I'm debating, debating uh, recording it. Also, uh, when I first heard about it, I wasn't that you know excited about it, but I've seen the trailers, and now it's got me uh, intrigued. I, I'm, I'll probably at least give the first uh, the pilot a, a, a chance. Right, right. Well, and I think part of what draws me to the show is like Sam Witwer. You know, we've in, we had it. It's always there's something about a show when you interview someone that's been in the show. Or is that going to be in the show that's kind of like saying, ooh, I want to watch it because he's in it. We met him, you're right? Um, by the way, if you, did, if you if you missed that interview that we did with Sam Whitmer, you can find it in episode 52 of the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. So 52, that's almost that's almost 50 episodes ago. Can you believe it? That was Farpoint. That was Farpoint almost a year ago. Yeah, that, that, I can't believe it. Yeah. 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 Well, tell us some news about Dollhouse Season 3. Well – it's been revealed that season three would have been a, a lot like Buff, Buffy. Uh, Dollhouse lasted only two seasons, but what had, ha, would have happened in a subterranean wish fulfillment complex had Fox given it one more year, one more year's worth of airtime. Producer and writer Tim Minear tells all. Minear, who also wrote and produced episodes of other Joss Whedon shows, Angel and Firefly, told us Simon as to the problem with the character who can't remember her actions could be a little boring for the audience. The writer then inverted the character's flaw, said Sinir. So when we started allowing her to remember things and then started taking the concept and making it to what her superpower was, it started turning to something else. I think you would have seen in season three a lot more embracing of its mythology and in terms of more of a superhero show. It would have been a little bit more buffy in some ways. Although Echo would have had no vampires to fight, she would have actively drawn upon the powerful ability she learned at high speed. And after 38 personalities, she had many heroic talents to choose from negotiations, hand-to-hand combats, and survival skills, just to name a few. It would have been wonderful to have them put to good use. Another mutant enemy show about a girl who kicks ass. It's not too good to be true, but then sadly it was. Yeah. Well, it's kind of cool to, you know, I threw the story in here because we obviously were huge Dollhouse fans and we're really sad when it went off the air and, you know, again, had a affinity for the show because of our connection to Miracle Laurie and stuff. And, uh, you know, it's always cool to see what might have been in the show, even though we'll never get, this is all we're going to get. We'll get no more Dollhouse. Um, I guess you could argue I'm always looking for a reason and excuse to bring Dollhouse in, but, <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> Miles, what are your thoughts? 
Um, I, I think they did kind of hint at that, that, that the Echo character, I mean, she was more than just, she was trying to be more than what she was. I mean, the, I mean, the fact that she was remembering these, uh, these personalities they programmed into her and the skills they did, there was definitely a hint of that there. And what I always liked about the show was that, um, it was a flawed, um, the technology was flawed. I mean, it, it, they said it, it, it could do this, but but we saw the thing coming apart at the seams, and, and evidence was the the Echo character that she, you know, they couldn't wipe the slate clean, so to speak. They had to keep. Um, she she always remembered who, whatever they they programmed into her. So yeah, yeah. I wish they. I think I recall Whedon saying that there would have been hit. He had like five years. Yeah, I believe there was a five year arc. Five year arc for yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. So uh, maybe that's all we get of Dollhouse, except for some comics that come out here and there. But, you know, at least we get a little bit of a taste of what might have been. Some wishful mm-hmm. thinking. Wishful thinking. Game of Thrones. Uh, mark your calendar for the premiere date in April. And this comes courtesy of Sci-Fi Mafia. HBO has finally announced the premiere date for the much-anticipated television adaptation of George R.R. R. Martin's fantasy series, Game of Thrones. Mark your calendars for April 17th. 2011. The 10-part series is based on Martin's book series, The Song of Ice and Fire. Martin himself never thought it was possible to adapt his book onto a television series. He had previously written for television on the series such as Beauty and the Beast and The Twilight Zone in the 80s and was frustrated by the constant demise of his grand ideas being shot down due to budgetary restrictions and decided to write a book that's just for me. I said, I'm going to write a book because it's just for me. I'm going to do something that is as epic and as huge as my imagination can contain. I'm going to have hundreds of characters, gigantic battles, and amazing vistas of castles because I don't have to worry about a budget and the production schedule and how we're going to do this. This is prose, and all I need is words and my readers' imagination joining together to do this. So it is ironic that here we are and we're producing it. Thankfully, executive producers David Beinhoff and Dan Weiss have to deal with all the problems and I don't. They have to take this thing that was never intended to be on television show or film and adapt it for television. So far, they're doing a hell of a job of it. But the show's successful, knock on wood, there'll be a second and third season and it just gets bigger and harder. Martin is executive producer for the show and wrote the eighth episode of its, its freshman season. So that's kind of cool. I mean, Fraser's is really looking forward to the show, and I, I have limited knowledge of it. I haven't read the books. Have you ever read Game of Thrones? I'm not familiar with that series. Yeah. And HBO, which means gives them a little bit more latitude as far as what they can air. But, you know, he talks about um, the grandioseness of it, and if there's, any, if there's ever a time where you can bring something that's very grandiose and do it, under budgetary constraints, I would think that now would be the time with all the CGI and how cheap it's become to do some of the CGI well. I think they can easily do it. Oh, yeah. So, so well worth it. If you're into fantasy, this might be something for you. Well, let's move into movie news and I'm going to start us off with a little bit of Hobbit news. We, of course, talked about The Hobbit when about a month or two ago. Mm-hmm. So about that, and we had some news about some people that were confirmed, but some, but then we got some stuff that we didn't know about that we were kind of worried about. But we did just got news that Andy Serkis and Ian McKellen have confirmed for The Hobbit, and the question becomes, who else is confirmed for The Hobbit? So here's the, here's what the story. 
The casting news keeps coming for The Hobbit. Annie Serkis and Ian McKellen officially signed on to reprise the roles of Gandalf and Gollum, which is awesome, Miles. I'm really happy about that. Oh, yeah. And even more familiar faces may be returning as well. According to Deadline, a deal has been closed for Circus once again don the motion capture suit and perform the role of Gollum for director Peter Jackson's two-part adaptation of The Hobbit. Circus portrayal of the doomed creature in Lord of the Rings with a breathtaking breakthrough both for him and the art of motion capture bringing Gollum to life almost entirely through CGI. Meanwhile, EW.com has confirmed that Ian McKellen has also officially signed his contract to portray Gandalf the Grey and one of the few, one of the few characters who plays a major role in both The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. The news comes on the heels of last week's spectacular revelation that Elijah Wood was also coming back as Frodo Baggins for scenes that will frame the story and provide a link to the earlier Rings movies. But more names from Lord of the Rings trilogy may be returning as well. Deadline says that Christopher Lee is in talks to surprise the role of the wizard Saruman and that Ian Holm may cameo as an older version of Bilbo Baggins, which he played in the Rings movie. The younger Bilbo will be played by Martin Freeman uh, in The Hobbit. Both Kate Blanchett's Galadriel and Hugo Weaving's Elrond are expected to show up in the films as well. Orlando Bloom as Legolas may also make an appearance. As noted before, Jackson and his co-writers Fran Wash, Felipe Boyens, and the one-time director Guillermo de Toro may have stretched their adaptation of The Hobbit to fit some of these characters into the world's novel storyline, but we'd be lying if we didn't admit the thought of seeing these actors playing their beloved roles again and almost overrides any concerns about the liberties taken with the text. Are you looking forward to so many Rings alumni in The Hobbit? Miles, are you? You know, I'm not familiar with the books, and so having some of these characters back in The Hobbit would be helpful for me. Uh, I don't know how um, fans of the series will react since it may not be as true to the original. Well, here's the thing. No doubt that you need Gandalf and Gollum back. They're going to be there. Also appropriate, depending on how they spin it, I guess the way it sounds like that Frodo and um, the older older, um, Bilbo – Maybe makes sense if they're kind of doing a flashback to tell the story. I mean, I don't know how they're going to be telling the story, but maybe they open it by kind of reflecting on the book and then they go back in time. Elrond makes sense because he's ageless, he's timeless, and Galadriel as well makes sense. Um, and I think Christopher Lee makes sense because at one point in The Hobbit, Gandalf leaves the wandering band of dwarves to go to a wizard council meeting and it makes sense that Christopher Lee would be there. Um, but when you bring in maybe some of these other characters, Legolas, I don't know if Orlando Bloom really needs to make an appearance here. But I don't know. If they deviate too far from it, I don't know. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be fun to see them. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy them as characters. I would love to see them again, but I might have a problem if they change the Hobbit too much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Miles, tell us about Ultramarines, a Warhammer movie. Okay, this is a straight-to-DVD uh, movie. I, um, this is uh, it's an animated one. It's starring the voices of talents of Terrence Stamp, uh, John Hurt, uh, voices you would be familiar with, uh, Sean Pertley, uh, Steve Waddington, uh, Donald Sumter, and John Harris. And it was directed by Martin Pick. Uh, it's already been released. Uh, they, it was released back in December of last year. They say for the first time ever, and to hundreds and thousands of fans, anticipation of 
Anticipation, a feature film based on Games Workmanship's uh, finale popular Warhammer 40,000 Science uh, Fantasy Universe has been brought to screen by new production company uh, Codex Pictures starring Terrence Stamp, um, uh, John Hurt, and Sean uh, Pertwee. And uh, it's based on the internationally successfully tabletop miniature war game uh, Warhammer 40,000 from, from uh, Games Workroom Shop. Ultra Marines is set 40,000 years in the grim, dark future when the Imperium of Man covers a million worlds and faces threats of, uh, from aliens, traitors, and demons. The suspenseful story follows a raw squad of Ultra Marines, a special unit of genetically enhanced armored space Marines, investigating an urgent request for assistance from the uh, remote shrine world of uh, Mithron. Mithron is defended by a full company of Imperial Fists, a fellow uh, chapter of Space Marines, who for countless generations have uh, stood guard over the planet and its Imperial Shrine. Uh, what a dreadful fate could have overcome them that they had to uh, activate the distress beacon. On arriving, the squad discovers that a terrible battle has taken place and some great evil has been unleashed. As unseen dangers close in around them, the newly promoted Battle Brothers have come out of tents and deadly insertion by any surviving Imperial Fists. And the reason behind the emergency signal. So, have you seen this, Miles? Uh, I saw a trailer for it, and the trailer looks pretty good. All right, we'll have the link for that in the show notes, and maybe even embed the trailer there. But uh, so it looked good. It's something that's on your Netflix list. Uh, not yet, but it probably will be. Um, it, so this is kind of you know sort of on the radar. I was doing a little dig, you know, my new things coming out. So, uh, oh, very but, good. But, but it's looking interesting, and with you know, with some top-notch voice talents as uh, Terrence Stamp and John Hurt. I mean, um, I'm sure if they're they're lending their talents to it, it's got to be something good. Oh yeah. Well, Sci-Fi ran a poll on their site. And I thought I'd just share this real quickly with you, and that is, which 2011 Sci-Fi movies are you looking forward to the most? And by far, out on top, people are looking for The Green Lantern. As their top movie. I'm not sure they'd be my top movie, but it, Green Lantern's on top. Following that is Thor with a few less votes. And then um, Captain America came out next, the first Avenger. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows, Sucker Punch, which I'm not interested in, and Cowboys and Aliens. So those were the top six, I guess, top seven. So at what order would you put those, Miles? Probably Captain America and Thor would be my top ones I'm forward to seeing. And then uh, Green Lantern and, and, and Cowboys and Aliens would be next. Yeah. I think for me it would be probably Thor, Captain America, Cowboys and Aliens, Green Lantern, and Harry Potter, and Sucker Punch would be totally at the bottom. Might not even see that. I could be surprised. Maybe I'll change my tune when I actually see some trailers for it. Well, let's yeah, I don't move. Know. Go ahead. Anything, anything sucker, I don't know anything on Sucker Punch. No, so. me, me neither. But apparently it's sci-fi, right? Let's go move into some other news, and we'll do this fairly quickly. We had uh, This came courtesy of J.P. Harvey, one of our listeners, who told us about Voyager arriving at the outward reaches of the solar wind and is preparing to enter interstellar space. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about the story below the picture there? All right. Uh, the Heliosphere animated uh, NASA... JPL. NASA's uh, Voyager 1 spacecraft, now in its 33rd year on the job, has reached the very edge of our solar system and is nearing the cusp of interstellar space. How does NASA know? The wind has died down. Uh, Voyager 1 has reached a point in the heliosheath and envelopes the solar system, which the speed of the solar wind has been at Voyager's back for three decades has dropped to zero. The point is some uh, 10.8 billion miles from the sun beyond the outer planets. 
and somewhat near the boundary between the solar system and interstellar space. The boundary is defined by the heliosphere, which reaches out toward the sun as far as the charged particles given off by an anchoring star can reach. So that's Those awesome. Charged- that is far. That's, that is very far. That is far. And that's, it's, it's kind of awesome. I mean, this is kind of the crowning achievement, not a crowning achievement, but it's, you know, this is, this is certainly a moment in, in mankind that we send this thing so far out. Right. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I wonder when we'll have the capability of surpassing its distance and you know, meeting up with our past sometime with Voyager. Mm-hmm. That'd be kind of cool. But one other piece of other news before we go to the, into the twist this week, and that is um, we're going to embed a video of a lightsaber battle that came up. And they said uh, – this is the small write-up on it. In what we think the lightsaber battles, the first thing that comes to mind is not Glee, but Harry Shum Jr., who stars in the hit series Mike Chang, has released a three-minute short film titled What Else? Three Minutes. And that is, has us changing our minds. And don't worry, there's no singing in the awesome mini-movie that follows. Shum calls his indie action thriller short film and promises more to come – Watch it below. We'll have it in the show notes. And let us know what you think. Miles, you saw this. What did you think of it? Um, I, I enjoyed it. It was, um, you know, it's, it, it's just a, a three-minute video, but uh, not a bad lightsaber battle for yeah. um, kind of a viral video. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, check it out. We'll put it in the show notes. Something worth seeing if you like lightsaber battles. Well, Miles, why don't you take us into this week in Star Trek? A uh, couple couple things I noticed that were really interesting in this week in Star Trek. There is an interview uh, on StarTrek.com with uh, an odd visitor. She played a Colonel Karen Reese on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And it's a two-part interview. I'm just going to read one question that was uh, asked and uh, and then post a question she posed to lots of fans. Uh, so in it, she's asked, how much of an inkling do you have that Major Kira would be an unusual special character? Uh, she replies, I had this sense right from the get-go, but I had a sense that she was a lead character. None. I thought there was one-off. I thought she was a guest role. I don't know why I was clear about that. Probably the time I was auditioning for three shows a day some days. So it was the time in TV when a lot of pilots were being made. I was at, at prime age and a place in my life to be up for a lot of them. I absolutely knew, though, that this, the whole role was extraordinary, and I wanted I actually didn't know it was a woman. I wasn't sure that it was a woman because it didn't sound like a woman. I was like, wait a minute, is this role I'm supposed to be reading? It just resonated with me so deeply. It was like putting on an outfit and thinking, yeah, this is mine. I've worn it before. It fits me perfectly. I think the warrior archetype has always been a part of me. And she posed a question to the fans uh, in this interview about... Um, her character, because she basically plays a former terrorist on Star Trek Space Nine, or freedom fighter, and how would her role be written? Uh, would it be, you know, kind of watered down? Would it be, you know, um, just given given the justice it deserves? And so, it post because um, the show ended in '99, and then a couple of years later, we had the tragic. Um, uh, event back in 9-11 um, and so it's just a which changed the world and how, 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 how would her character be written today if, if, if the show was going on and I think you know if if, if Ron DeCar was behind the base 9 today hypothetically if he was back in the 90s I think he would have still given her character um, a lot of justice and a lot of uh, uh, meat to it. Um, in other Star Trek news um, so, something 
I've been following. There's a bid to save the Star Trek The Experience sign, and the, the, the Star Trek The Experience is unofficial historian, friend uh, of Subspace Communicate, Vernon Wilmer, is fighting to save the Star Trek The Experience sign. As you know, The Experience left the Las Vegas Hilton back in 08 and uh, has yet to be reborn any other location. Uh, it was at the Hilton. The Hilton has also yet to fill the giant hole left by the experience, but still branches the iconic Delta Shield and Star Trek The Experience logo on the hotel's facade. That's where Vern comes in. He's trying to get the Star Trek The Experience sign saved and preserved as a bit of Vegas history. A completely worthy and noble cause as far as uh, we're concerned. A Las Vegas CBS affiliate, uh, KLAS, featured Vern and other friends, so speaks to K, uh, April Hobert on the evening news covering the uh, plight of the Star Trek Experience sign. My concern is that the last vestige of Star Trek experience of the beloved local landmark, and I think the sign should be preserved somehow, said Vern. I've tried suggesting to, to a number of organizations, see if you grab the sign, preserve it. Now the response is, we're disinterested or our hands are tied, he said. With, with the hope that Star Trek experience are rematerializing somewhere else, fading, we can wish that at least the sign can be saved and preserved. Uh, check out the KLS coverage uh, between Vern and April below, and we'll post the link to our show notes. Very good, very good. Oh, that'd be cool if they could save that. Save that yes. Time. Yeah. You know, and I want to go back to the first story about, you know, that made me think as you're talking about the whole terrorist there that Next Generation did a whole terrorist um, one. I remember watching, I forget which episode it was. Do you remember the one that Next Generation did on terrorism? I, I do. I do. Uh, it was um, where, where Picard and, um, and uh, Prussia get kidnapped by the uh, opposing side. Oh yes, yes, and they use that that different warp or the different transport technology that allows them to go through different things, and it ends up hurting them and killing them in the end. Um, but they're terrorists, and I remember w- listening to that episode and and um, or like watching that episode and just having a very different feel that that really resonated and, I, and really resonated, I think, because of the world that we live in in a different way, maybe than some of the other episodes. But I enjoyed it. I think it. I think it's relevant. And you know, do you do you show mercy to these people? And you know, some good information, good thoughts. Well, I remember the character compared himself to you know uh, our George Washington. So just you know, asks lots of questions. And when you start getting Deep Space Nine, they kind of explore. It makes you think. You know. Yeah. And that's, more, and that, more, more questions. And that's what good sci-fi does. Makes you think. That's for sure. Before we go into our interview with Bob Greenberger, let's give you our last promo of the night. And our promo of the night is from the podcast Podcast Squared, which is a lifestyle network podcast that we're part of, Pod Network, I guess, podcast. And we, of course, are part of that network. But I was also recently interviewed, Miles, last week on this podcast regarding the Sci-Fi Diner. It probably was like the middle of your bedtime. It was like the middle of the day. I think is why you weren't involved in it. But uh, make sure you check out his podcast as he talks about, uh, you know, as he interviews many different things about podcasting and podcasters. It's Andrew from Podcast Squared, and you're listening to the insightful, hilarious, and dead sexy lifestyle pod network. If you like these podcasts and you want to hear about other interesting and similar podcasts, then check out my site, podcastsquared.com, for reviews of podcasts and interviews with your favorite podcast hosts, all conveniently located in a podcast. Who'd have thought?
Welcome back to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. We have on the docket to interview tonight Bob Greenberger. Miles, wow, Bob Greenberger. You met Bob before, right? Yes, I've I've had a chance to I met him at the uh the Shirley of Conventions. He's been there, you know, um helping out there, you know, introducing the guests. And for me, I mean, I've been joining Star Trek novels for over 20 years now. So anytime I get a chance to speak to one and talk a little Star Trek, I mean, I, I'm just, you know, jazzed about that. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, he's been an integral part of some of the roasts. In fact, don't know if you know this, Miles, but Bob Greenberger is going to be roasted this year. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, so he's in for it. He is in Sacr- for it. Sacrificial lamb this year. He is. He is. By the way, the roast we're talking about takes place at the Shoreleave Con, which we're hoping to be back to this year. Uh, Shoreleave Con, they do the roast to raise money for the American Red Cross, uh, an organization that's near and dear to Bob's heart. So, and uh, he's a part of that in some way, and so it's really cool to kind of talk about it. Miles, it was unfortunate that we couldn't really have you a part of the interview. Massive technical difficulties. Yeah, massive Skype issues. Skype has actually held out pretty good. You cut out a few places, but I think I'll be able to edit around it. Uh, Skype has not been our friend tonight. I mean, typically we try to get you in-house to record, and we just – it sounds beautiful when you're there. I love having well, you. Well, yeah, the, the elements have not been kind to us tonight, that's for sure. Yep. Well, uh, without further ado, we're going to bring you our interview with Bob Greenberger. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. And now, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoy the Star Trek novels, superhero novels, and movie tie-in novels, then you'll be delighted to know that we're talking with the author who's penned many of the ones that you and I have read before. He's also a member of the Science Fiction Writers of America, where he has served as a judge for the Nebula Awards and of the International Association of Media Tie-in Writers. Also, if you've attended Farpoint Con and Shore Leave conventions in the past, you've seen and heard this gentleman introduce many of the fine guests at those conventions have had over the years. For we are speaking with Mr. Robert Greenberger tonight. Mr. Greenberger, welcome and thank you for taking time to speak with us on the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Absolutely my pleasure to be here, guys. Yeah, well, it's certainly good to have you. It's uh we almost brought you last week, and then my son got sick, and you know, such is the breaks of family life, and it happens. So, thanks for being willing to come on with us this week. My pleasure. What do you want to talk about today? Oh, let's talk about some sci-fi and about your role in sci-fi history. How about that, Bob? Sounds weighty. It is weighty. <laughs> it is weighty. Um, oh, well, uh, <laughs> I want to start out with a little bit, um, and I guess more of a general question is. So you obviously are you obviously have a love of sci-fi because you wouldn't be writing books, novels, and 
dabbling in the superhero universe if you didn't. What right. what kind of what kind of drew you into that? I mean, what what made you that person? Good question. Um honestly, Apparently, it all started when I was six years old and was homesick. Uh, unfortunately, I had asthma as a child, and every fall, invariably, I seemed to come down with bronchitis and was, you know, in bed for a couple of days. And when I was six, mom brought me a Superman comic book, uh, to keep me occupied while I was stuck in bed. And I was captivated by the larger than life stories, I guess, and everything about superheroes and the fantastic and the science fiction elements uh, that spun out from that um, really, really captivated me. And then um, my parents and my family, extended family that is, uh, kind of indulged that. So I was getting um, Tom Corbett's Space Cadet novels to, to take, you know, to read over the summers. And I remember um, getting real excited going into the bookmobile during the school book fair and Buying Lester Del Rey's The Runaway Robot and, and some of the James Blish Star Trek adaptations. And it just fed one after the other. Right. Right. <laughs> so m- most of that was then in, in, in the area of literature then or in, in the area of the written word, right? It, I guess it would start with the comics and then the, the, the prose works. Uh, although obviously growing up in the 1960s, watching a lot of television, there, there was, you know, all the, all the great animation that was on at the time, plus, uh, reruns of the George Reeves Superman cartoon show and then, uh, not cartoon show, sorry, the live action. And then in 1966, uh, in fact, uh, January 12th, tomorrow is the anniversary of the show's debut. Uh, you know, it was Batman. Ooh, yeah. Which brought everything to life. It did. It did. And talk about this classic stuff. Well, well, so that's the sci-fi part of it. And now let's talk about the writer part of it. I mean, what, what brought you into saying, you know what? I want to write the stuff. I and mean, was there a teacher? Uh, was there? Again, ahead. no, it goes back to Superman. It goes back to being <laughs> fascinated by what Clark Kent did for a living. Uh, oh, working, wow. The Daily Planet. for a great metropolitan newspaper. Um, I mean, that really was very influential. Uh, in first grade, when I was diagnosed as needing glasses, I picked a pair of frames that closely resembled what uh, George Reeves <laughs> wore on the TV show. And uh, wanting to write about this stuff for the school newspaper when I got to middle school or junior high, as it was called, um, you know, all of a sudden I just got into all of that. And, and from that point on, I wanted to get into publishing. I would journalism of some sort, magazines or newspapers. Uh, I was a major comic book fan by this point. It never occurred to me that I could possibly work in that field, but obviously that changed. Um, but I you know, went to college to learn to be a journalist and things just, you know, it was a steady progression. And then your next question, Miles. I asked this question to other Star Trek novel authors, but I also wanted to get your take. As a Star Trek fan, I hate that many times in the show, they will often leave a lot of loose ends and may never follow up in the past show. However, as a reader of Star Trek novels, I love the fact that you, the authors, often pick up on these loose ends and follow up on what happened before. What often happens is a very enjoyable book. As a Star Trek novel author, how do you feel about this? Well, audiences for the television show dwarf audiences for the prose adaptations or uh, media tie-ins and as a result 
you can tell these stories uh, to this more core audience and satisfy that particular itch. Uh, what you will discover with any serialized, dramatic uh, primetime television series, there are always loose ends. There are loose, loose ends on your favorite shows that are on today, much as there was back then. Um, I will admit that today there's a lot more episode to episode continuity and certainly a lot more use of recurring characters to grow that universe. Uh, but even back in the 1960s when Star Trek was on NBC, um, all its contemporary shows had characters who would come back like Harry Mudd did on Star Trek. Uh, but loose ends were just, you know, what happened? You told your story, you know, your 60 minute slot and you moved on to the next story. Um, so Star Trek is fortunate in that it has the audience that allowed writers to go in and follow the thread, fill in the gap. Uh, fans of a lot of the other shows never had that chance or uh, the writers of those books never bothered because they were, you know, telling other stories. Uh, they one off stories that had nothing to do with what ha happened on the show, just used the same characters. Uh, the Man from Uncle series of books, the Dark Shadows series of books that were contemporaneous with the early Star Trek fiction are perfect examples of that. Hmm. Well, that makes, that makes sense, you know, and, uh, and, you know, when you target it, you, you mentioned it, you, those books are really targeted to the core audience and not the more general audience. And they're the ones that really are clamoring for more of the story and, you know, what happened if this, if, with this incident? And, and you, you kind of provide, the unofficial backstory to those, you know, loose threads and events. And that, that has to be satisfying. It satisfies the audience to some degree and uh, has to be satisfying to know that you're fill it, filling that need. We are fans of the material we want. So as you, the reader are fascinated by the episode and want to know what happens next. So we, the writers, we're just very fortunate that we have a chance to, to, you know, interpret it, as we see fit, um, you know, pick a thread, any thread and give it to three writers. You'll get three entirely different novels out of it. This is another question I like to ask, ask a Star Trek authors. Did you like the new Star Trek movie this past year? And will you be writing novels in what's being called the JJ verse? Uh, let me answer the first, uh, the second part of that question first, which is um, for the JJ universe, the, Four novels that were written last year were requested by Paramount and, and JJ's production company to hold them off uh, because the movie, which was hoped for 2011, got pushed off to 2012, and they didn't want to have novels filling in potential gaps or doing things that might contradict what's established in the second screenplay. So those are on the shelf. So whenever those happen, there's already JJ-verse books out there, and everybody – myself included, would love a crack at these refreshed characters in reality. Um, the odds are against it. Uh, and I'll be very honest with everybody that the contract between Paramount and Pocketbooks is up, I think, at the end of 2011 or, or into 2012. And until that's renegotiated, the odds of uh, a lot of opportunities, um, you know, are pretty much on hold. How long does a con – how long does – a contract like that usually lasts. I mean, how long has Pocket? I mean, Pocketbooks have written for Star Trek for years. Pocketbooks has had the license since 1979, but it gets re renegotiated with uh, options built in. And uh, I gather this is time for the next renewal. Okay. Uh, 
it's certainly a refreshed franchise and Paramount is probably thinking, um, grandiose ideas that may not match what Pocket, which oddly is a sister division to Paramount through the CBS Paramount paradigm. Right. Um, you know, Pocket may not think it's worth what Paramount does and it could very well go up to auction to other publishing houses. Um, we'll see. Anything's possible. Oh, it's true. And it's all business. Yeah, uh, that's what it is. Yeah. So, uh, what was Miles' first question that we had to follow Well, up the on? other half of the question is what did I think of the movie? And the movie is, uh, the movie is very refreshing and entertaining and it takes modern day technology and modern day storytelling with the same concepts and characters and did things in a really wonderful way. I wish the science made more sense. Uh, I wish, I don't think they really needed the Spock, uh, time travel angle. Um, if anything, it confuses the issue because it's, you know, the Star Trek we all grew up on is universe A. The Spock time travel, uh, the Leonard Nimoy character seems to be coming from universe B and changing time, creating universe C, so that the original Gene Roddenberry universe is completely untouched by the movie. And people who didn't like the movie can still enjoy what Gene and right. Gene Kuhn and everybody else did and enjoy it. Right. And people who really got into what J.J. provided, that's fine. It, it all works. Right, right. Yeah, well, certainly enjoyed the movie too, and and I've watched it numerous times. It's not just not just a single watch, and certainly it certainly brought a new audience into Star Trek that absolutely that hadn't touched it. You know, I in fact I was just in my class today. We had a little bit of downtime, and they saw I had iTunes up, and they saw that I have Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams in my iTunes, and they okay. said, and they said, hey, can we watch that? We love that movie, and it was a you know this is these are my seniors that. You know, didn't grow up in Trek, would not even, most of them would not consider themselves science fiction fans and are clamoring over this movie. That's great. Yeah. Well, Speaks I, well for uh, 2012 when the sequel gets uh, yeah. released. Oh, you bet. You bet. Yeah. So we're just, we're just hoping, right? That 2012 be, <laughs> continues to be that date. Now, you haven't just written Star Trek though. I mean, you, you've gotten into, you've done a lot of Star Trek books, but you've also written for other genres or other forms of science fiction. For the benefit of our listeners who may not be as familiar with your work, can you tell us some of the other genre and tie-in novels you've done? Oh, sure. Uh, from a pure science fiction uh, standpoint, uh, I had a short story in an anthology some years ago called Oceans of Space and co-wrote a story that appeared in Analog, uh, co-written with Michael A. Burstein. Um I dabbled in Keith Laumer's Bolo universe with a uh, novella uh, in Bolo's book four from Bain Books many, many years ago. Um, and other tie-ins, uh, I did the novelization to Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. And oh, good movie. It was fun. Yeah. Uh, co-wrote with Michael Jan Friedman, a Predator novel, uh, Flesh and Blood. Uh Solo wrote uh, an original Iron Man novel, uh, Femme Fatales, which came out last year. And obviously on the nonfiction side of life, there was the 
Batman Encyclopedia, the Batman Vault, the Spider-Man Vault, co-written with Peter David, the Superman Essential Superman Encyclopedia, co-written with Martin Pasco. Uh, there was a um, celebration of Wonder Woman that came out last year called Wonder Woman, Amazon Hero Icon. Um, you know, so there, there's an armload of stuff out there. Right. Well, and some of that superhero work comes out of the fact that you worked for DC and Marvel for a while. Is that correct? You bet. Yeah, I logged in about 20 years over two stints at DC Comics and uh, one very interesting year at Marvel. <laughs> and that's all you'll say about it. No, no. very cool. And uh, so tell us a little bit about your roles at DC, at DC and Marvel. And if you want well, sure. to go to mean, Mar- either uh, one. DC hired me in 1984 to work with Len Wein and Marv Wolfman on the 50th anniversary project, The Crisis on Infinite Earths, in its companion book, The Who's Who. And from there, I started working as an assistant editor with Len and Marv on their other books, including uh, helping Marv on the Star Trek title. Uh, when Marv finally left staff full-time, uh, to return to full-time writing, I should say, um, I took over the Star Trek title. And slowly began getting other books to edit and was editing numerous titles for the company uh, into the early 90s when I switched to the administrative track of the company where I stayed uh, through 2000, uh, dabbled in the internet for just under a year. And then Joe Quesada invited me over to Marvel where it was a really interesting year helping them try and add some structure to the company after it emerged from bankruptcy and then – January 2002, they decided to go in a different direction, and uh, DC brought me back to work on its collected editions. So I was a senior editor there for four years, and then after a couple of mistakes happened, uh, they they decided they were done with me. And uh, I then went to work at the Weekly World News, where where you know very little of it was factual, but I had the time of my life. <laughs> uh, and when uh, the publishers foolishly uh, shuttered the magazine i went full-time freelance for the last three years and that's kind of where we are very very cool so that's kind of your writing journey or editing journey at the very least mm-hmm. yeah well that's awesome that's awesome i was curious because uh, i knew that you had these anthologies come out and obviously if you and editing these you have to have a fair knowledge of that universe of those universes and growing up i guess with it helped give you that yes absolutely yeah uh the nice the nice thing about the career i've had is that when I've had staff jobs, I've always had the ability to do freelance stuff on the side, allowing me to exercise different creative muscles. So it was a really, really satisfying career. Hmm. Yeah, awesome. Now, you've seen a lot of changes happen I mean, you uh, in, in your career. For example, you mentioned that you dabbled in the Internet a little bit in the around you know, 99, 2000. And then uh, obviously as a writer, you, you see that impact you're writing with um, – with the, the the move from the print to to the ebook, in fact, you did a recent blog about the whole idea of of dead tree media and how it's kind of starting to become a thing of the past. And you know, well, uh, you know, the thing is, is that it's a we're really at the beginning of the next phase for publishing. You know, if you, if you to get historical about it, I mean, back when Gutenberg invented the the printing press. It changed the way information was delivered to people and more people got it because it could be mass produced. Right. And you go through these evolutionary periods um, when high-speed printing presses came up and they actually managed to add color uh, at the end of the 19th century. 
that gave rise to an entirely different kind of, of medium, which led to comic books as a byproduct of that. Um, and then you had radio and television as different ways of, of delivering information, all coexisting. Uh, but pretty much since the beginning of the 20th century through today, publishing has pretty much been the same. You know, uh, different sizes and shapes and prices of books, but they're still printed and sent to bookstores and people buy them. Right. Amazon was the first real change in how people acquired their books. And now today, uh, the ebooks that have been bubbling over the last 10, 15 years have gained mass acceptance because of things like the Kindle and then the next generation with the iPad. So now these full color tablets allow you to get the color books you couldn't on a Kindle. Right. And comics are the main beneficiary of that. But if you look at photography books, travel books, uh, medical journals, anything that works best in color, you can now do on a, on a tablet reader. And as noted at Christmas time, as people got Kindles and tablets and other uh, e-readers, book sales were skyrocketing. To the point where last week USA Today's bestseller list had more ebooks than print books. Wow, I wasn't aware of that. So there's a definite seismic shift going on, but book publishers and authors are all trying to figure out how best to monetize this. Right. So a lot of authors have said, "I took all my old out-of-print short stories and I threw them up on, uh, you know, on, on Amazon for a dollar ninety-nine each, and I'm." Suddenly making 15, 20 bucks a week I, I wasn't making before. And you're not going to get rich on 15, 20 bucks a week, but it's 15, 20 bucks a week and keeping your work out there that may build your audience base so that when you actually have your next new novel, more people are, are prone to buy it. Right, right. That's very true. But, but then it comes down to who is best equipped to take the author's work and deliver it to the reader. There are some who say, I'll do it all myself. Right. And then it's buyer beware because these people may not know how to proofread or, or, um, take their written manuscript and turn it into something that works as an e-reader. Right. There are others who say, I am a brand. I want, I want to be the best possible brand I can be and will hire a copy editor and hire someone to do their book cover and it will be as slick looking as anything you can buy from the major publishers. Right. But that costs more money and it's an investment. Right. And the question authors have to ask themselves are, is the extra investment in the copy editor and in the proofreader and in the uh, publication design going to make that much of a difference that it's worth the investment? And people are arguing because nobody knows yet. There's still no metric data um, that people believe in yet because it's all still evolving. Yeah, the, the jury's out in that at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. So where where are you personally kind of coming down on this at this point? I am talking with various people, literally, like three or four different groups of people about this very topic. And because tomorrow is a snow day, I am likely to sit down and start working on something that will be my first ebook only project uh, with two other people that um, we're not talking about yet. So okay. we'll see. So we have that um, to look forward to. Hopefully. But it's something we're going to be exploring. 
Right. And, and that's, and that's really what you do with this whole, this whole new media shift that we have that's going on. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's good. I, I read your blog. I was interested in it. And, uh, and you're right. You know, I think about that even with, um, music that I, I, I used to be a musician and in a band in the mid, mid nineties. And, you know, that music's now defunct, but recently had it listed in iTunes because, you know, it's a whole new audience to download it that has access to that music that even if I get a dollar off of that a week, it's more than I got off of, you know, not having it out there at all. So. It's very true. I mean, that, I mean, that is one of the key things that I think the music companies may have missed out on and what the movie studios are starting to figure out now is all the stuff in a digital form means nothing need go out of print again. Right. Uh, I think, for example, Warner Archives, uh, their print-on-demand DVD service, is taking all the stuff that might have – teeny tiny audiences but they're putting the stuff out there for these teeny tiny audiences and making money off it right so you know that's cool and you know if your old band and all these other obscure bands that that aren't performing anymore and their records are long gone have their stuff out there people are either going to rediscover it or old people are going to go i remember seeing these guys and 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 Buy the download and you'll make a buck. Yeah, uh, right. I, I think it's fabulous. Right, right. Well, I, so just a kind of uh, shifting uh, out of that topic a little bit. You, you, you obviously one of the ways you connected to your readers have been through attending the cons uh, in the past years. We have, of course, uh, Miles and I have seen you at Farpoint and Shore Leave. Uh, what other cons do you typically attend throughout a year? Or are those the main ones? Okay. Um, I also attend Icon out at Stony Brook University. Okay. Uh, yes. That's always a spring show. It's a wonderful experience. I've been there since the very first. It's like 30 years old now. Nice. Um, I also may, uh, can be found at Lunacon, put on by the uh, Lunarian Society, one of the oldest science fiction organizations in the country. Um, that's also uh, an early spring show in um, Westchester County, New York. Uh, New York Comic Con every October. And every year somebody invites me to some show I've never been to or, or the stars align and I make it back out to San Diego or some other or Dragon <laughs> Con down Atlanta. Um, and those are great experiences as well. And, and obviously it's time, schedule and money. Right. Obviously. Obviously. Um, <laughs> and so are those some of the, so some of those are regular cons for you. So you're looking at about four or five cons a year, right? Yes, at least at it. At the, at the and it, and admittedly, it's the Northeast area because I can get to it easily, or oh, the yeah. cons don't have to spend a lot of money to bring me there. Um, yeah. And that's fine. Um, basically, you know, my deal with any con that invites me, as I did in Baton Rouge um, in November, from the moment I leave my door to the moment I return home to my door, if a show wants me and they're willing to cover those expenses door to door. I'm theirs, and they get 100% of my time whenever I'm at, you know, wherever I am. Right. Uh, because I love dealing with the fans. I love talking to people. I, I am more than happy to, you know, do panels and moderate panels or auctioneer or judge costume contests, whatever they need, because I enjoy the, the interaction and the experience and a chance to be in different places. So, uh, it, I, I welcome those opportunities because, it's great to 
blog with people. It's great to IM with people, share Facebook messages. Nothing beats a face-to-face conversation, especially in an enthusiastic environment that, that's welcoming and uh, encourages impromptu debating. Right, right. And that, you know, probably a, is a group, just in, as you mentioned, it's more than just the fans. I mean, you're connecting with your fellow authors in those, in those venues as well. I mean, right. And there's no question. I Go mean, ahead. Lunacon for me is more reconnecting with, with peers than it is with the fans just because it, it tends to be a smaller show and it, and we get to see one another, which is a fabulous opportunity. Uh, you know, the World Science Fiction Convention, San Diego, those, those are opportunities that are as much uh, business networking as it is talking to fans. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I, I think, I think that has to be probably one of the perks of it because I mean, you think of writing as being such a solitary act. Maybe not so much today, but I think in a, in a rural way, when you put your uh, pen to paper or your fingers to the keyboard, it's ultimately just you, you and you in that world at that point. So. Absolutely. And I have to say, it has evolved. It was never done by design, but uh, Short Leave has evolved to become the Star Trek authors convention. Oh, yeah. And dozens of Star Trek authors, uh, from one story to a dozen books or more of your Peter David. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, the guy um, never we will congregate and we do this massive meet the authors event on Friday night and then we all do panels. And the rest of the time we find, you know, we're usually at the bar um, chatting with one another because it's a great just gathering time and it's fabulous. Yeah. Dayton Ward's fond of saying that many stories will come out of the bar. There's no question how many (laughs) projects get born at these things. Um, And so, and some of it is print projects and other times, um, out of these bar experiences, uh, we began the author roasts that actually are now um, fundraisers for the American Red Cross. Right, and that, that they so, happen. Okay. Um, do you just do, those are just done at Shore Leave, right? Right, those currently are just at Shore Leave. Uh, it's the Friday night at the show, right before the uh, Meet the Authors event. Um, first year we roasted uh, Keith the Candido last year we roasted the uh end of the career of Michael Jan Friedman yeah it was funny uh, I, i've been the roast master and for summer 2011 i am the victim you are the victim woo so you ready to get roasted i don't know <laughs> they're brutal uh, because, sometimes <laughs> cuz the producer dave mack um so you know he's such a a hands-on producer i i almost literally get a script handed to me after we talk about it as opposed to my sitting down having to write my script i'm on my own for the rebuttal this year and that scares me (laughs) oh man uh he and he does such a wonderful job of kind of orchestrating that whole event he had such a great time. I mean, you know, Dave studied film, and this is a chance to do the the video opening and some of the uh, interstitial bits, and just producing a live event gets him very excited. And the fact that we can do this to raise hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars for the American Red Cross and laugh for two solid hours is just amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, it's certainly good work, and I look forward to seeing it this year. We uh, we plan on being back at Shore Leave, so we'll definitely oh, be, we'll definitely be at Farpoint, but. Uh, a short leave is in the works. So good uh, because they've just announced their first three guests, and it and you know, it's got me excited. One of them is Christopher Judge, right? Yes. And who are the other two? I missed it. 
John Delancey. Oh, yeah. Everybody's favorite Q. Right. And then uh, Sally Kellerman, awesome. the original Hot Lips Houlihan, uh, who was also in the uh, first William Shatner pilot uh, for Star Trek. Very cool. Very cool. Oh, um, it's very Now, let's bring this a little bit uh, into, I guess, a modern. Uh, we dialogued on Twitter. Did you get a chance to watch The Cape yet? Uh, no, I, I have seen the previews for the Cape. It remains on my DVR, and as soon as uh, this interview is over, I intend to sit down with, with my dinner and watch it. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's, uh, um, I gather the ratings were, were okay, but the reviews were fairly um, tough. Yeah. Well, I, I'll let you uh, – we, we'll have to talk on Twitter after you watch That's it because I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be interested in the – Thing we think about it, I I enjoyed it. I will tell you that I enjoyed it, and I felt that it was a throwback to some of the more traditional uh, comic book style shows that we haven't been seeing for a long time, and I like that. Some people argued that that made it kind of cliched, but that didn't bother me. So, well, all right. So I'm open minded. I will try. I will try it. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a, a well done action adventure show is always welcome. Yep, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> The other question I was going to ask, we're actually going to, I think, hit in our sci-fi five and five here, but um, do you have any future work that we that you can tell us about that's coming out that we can look forward to that our that our listeners can kind of engage in? Right now, uh, I've got a bunch of short works that are going to be showing up over the next couple of months. I've written a few pieces for um, Marvel's Marvel Spotlight magazine. I did two for their Thor issue and one for their uh, Wizard of Oz issue. Uh, they're also doing a uh, one-shot magazine celebrating the 70th anniversary of Captain America. They've got an article on that. Uh, the February on-sale issue, uh, the Valentine's issue of uh, Star Trek magazine from Titan Books. I've got an article on that, and I'm just today started working on another article for them. And uh, the next – the, the book work is definitely tried up for uh, you know one of those ebb, ebb and flow things. Uh, but the next book work for me is going to be a retrospective on the career of uh, Howard Chaikin, uh, the artist and writer, um, okay. which I did for Dyna Dynamic Forces. Um, that's been designed. I believe they're soliciting it over the next couple of months, and it should be out by summer 2011. So that that's exciting. Awesome. Awesome. We will look forward to reading some of that stuff. So um, before we wrap up the interview, where can people find out more about you, about your work? Where can they buy your work and maybe support you and, you know, all the things uh, you like to do? Uh, there's an author's page at Amazon with all my uh, books, uh, many of which are still in print and many are available as ebooks, and many are available not at all. Beyond that, www.bobgreenberger, one word. Dot com is my website. I'm on Twitter, Bob Greenberger. I'm on Facebook. Um, come say hello. Those are the main outlets. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with us tonight as we uh, talk about sci-fi, Star Trek, comics, and everything else. That's always fun. Yeah. Well, welcome back to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Bob is still with us, and we're going to do a Sci-Fi 5 and 5 where we talk about what we believe are at least the top five, or maybe not in any order, maybe just five of the best incarnations of superheroes in modern media. And does that sound about right, Bob? 
sounds about right to me. Good, good. Well, did you have one that kind of, what do you want to start us off with? Or do you want me to start off with one? I'll start off with uh, Christopher Reeve's Superman. And I'm going to say that not only because it was a wonderful movie and a great experience, but given that it came out in 1977, it proved so influential to a generation of filmmakers who have since gone on to make their own comic book based movies or go into the comic book business um, that its influence is really immeasurable. Hmm. Yeah. And I would, uh, I would, uh, I would agree with that. I think one of the ones that I would put on that list is probably um, with Chris Nolan's Batman. I think the, the dark grittiness and the return to some of the Frank Miller uh, feel of the darkness of it. I liked, especially, especially the first one. I remember uh, Batman Begins was just such a, it was a it was a refreshing change from some of the cheesy, happy-go-lucky uh, 1980s Batman, which you know had had merit in their own right, but were different than the Chris Nolan Batman. I, I concur. Um, Batman Begins was was a wonderful reimagining of of uh, the character. Um, I had my qualms with what was done with the character in the second film. I'm curious to see how the third one and what's supposed to be Christopher uh, Christian Bale's final uh, Batman movie how how that's all going to you know work itself out. Right. No, no question that the Joker in the second movie was phenomenal, but <laughs> Heath Ledger did a great job with that. But. Absolutely. Um, well, uh, do you have another one? Uh, I have to give props to Sam Raimi for, for taking, uh, Stanley and Steve Ditko Spider-Man and doing it right. Oh yeah. Uh, that first, that first movie, uh, was the first really good adaptation of the Marvel source material as engaging and entertaining as Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno were in the Hulk or, uh, some of the, uh, animated material that, that preceded, uh, the Spider-Man movie. That was Marvel done right. It, it showed the way. Right. And it allowed Marvel to go off and, and, you know, do the other really entertaining movies, you know, Iron Man and hopefully Thor and Cap later this year. Right, right. We, uh, we have high hopes for them. That's for sure. Um, and, yeah. uh, well, and that's, that's certainly one that I, uh, and I would say that the first one especially was the one that really to kind of defined that, that, those movies, the Spidey yeah. movies. Um, and I think another one for me that, uh, that really, um, that really worked for me was, uh, and some people may disagree with this, but I really enjoyed Wolverine. Okay. I, I know I, it's not one that maybe is typical, but I, you know, I find that I know, I know that the plot may have been a bit scarce, but it was one that just kept me on the edge of my seat the entire time watching it. And, That's fine. And I, uh, mean, I was very entertained. Uh, my personal issues were, uh, they made changes to the origin story that I, I felt really didn't need to happen. And frankly, there, there was a part of me that thought the entire sequence, uh, title sequence at the beginning of the movie should have been the movie. Okay. Because there was a little too many every other mutant and not enough about how this guy turned into the berserker. Right, right. Yeah, and that, you know, I, I I could agree with that. I think part of part of it is that I did not grow up really reading a ton of Wolverine, so and maybe okay. that maybe that maybe that saves it a little bit more from someone that actually has read the Wolverine or followed, followed Wolverine throughout the years. So, well, I I am personally excited about the role of Wolverine. I'm sorry, I jarred that. Yeah, um, but that's the uh, sequel that uh, is going to start shooting soon. Uh, because that's based on the Claremont 
Frank Miller miniseries, which was a wonderful story that still holds up. Is that the one? So, in, is that the one that takes place in Japan? Is that right? Yes, yes, it is. Okay, so I, I thought so. I'm looking forward to that one too. The sequel coming out, but and do we have a fifth one here on the docket that you can give us that you feel is worthy of comic book to uh, you know adapted comic book that that. I'm trying to think broadly beyond movies and television and what about the Watchmen? I did not personally really enjoy the movie, but I heard that it was a pretty good adaptation. It was incredibly faithful. Okay. And, so maybe we can say that. <laughs> well, no, you know, the thing is it was incredibly faithful. It was very entertaining. Um, but it wasn't the last word on superheroes, which was what Alan wrote. When he wrote the maxi series, um, you know some of the gravitas and, and, and the the comic book trope underpinnings that that um, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons were playing with were missing from the movie, which is why it probably didn't feel as special as it could have. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if there were enough superhero movies to merit the same sort of approach. Hmm. Uh, but having said that, it was still very engaging, still very entertaining. Right. Right. So is that worthy of our top five, or do we pick another one here? Uh, you know, I'm I'm continuing to scan my bookcase here because there there have been ver- a number of very good books written about the characters. For example, David Mack, not the Kabuki David Mack, but the Star Trek David Mack, did a wonderful Wolverine novel, uh, Road of Bones, and I thought that brought the character to prose in a very nice way. Um, Jim Butcher did a great Spider-Man novel. Uh, you know, so, and unfortunately DC and Marvel never publicized the books based on their characters, which is why these public lines come and go so quickly because they don't sell because nobody knows they exist. And, uh, so the, you know, through the years there've been some really, really good books based on these characters that people have probably missed. Probably missed because of that. Yeah, so you know, can, can I do books as a number five category? Sure, we'll put we'll put books in its whole thing. So I mean, you know, and and it's you find your favorite character. They probably have been in prose somewhere and probably been better done than you would imagine. Right, right. Yeah, well, very cool. Well, thank you so much for giving us uh, your helping out with the sci-fi five and five on the superheroes. My pleasure. All right. Well, thanks, Bob, again for sharing us your sci-fi five and five. And, Miles, it's about time for us to leave this show. But please, if you've been listening, don't forget about the Batman trivia at the very beginning of the show. Call us at 1-888-508-4343 and, you know, share it. Find us on Twitter at the Sci-Fi Diner. Uh, Miles, they can find you on Twitter, right? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm Son of Warf at Twitter, and uh, like you, Scott, I'm uh, on, on our fan on our Facebook fan page. Uh, just uh, talk sci-fi with our listeners. Yeah, yep, 174, I believe, at last count. So we're getting up there. We're we're getting closer, ever closer to 200. So very good. But more important than that, whether we hit 200, we just enjoy the conversation. So if you're not a part of the fan page, we would love to have you there. I know that not everyone's Facebooks, but that's kind of where our discussion is at at this point. And if someone wants to work in setting up performance for us, hey, we might even think about doing that. But I believe that's it, Miles. Why don't you go ahead and take us out of the show? Okay, until next time, good night and good luck. We'll see you.
Make it so. Make it so. Make it so. This is a contest, and I sing horribly. Well, here is the title track for Star Trek. Beyond the rim of the starlight. My love is wandering in starlight. I know he'll find in star clustered reaches. Love, strange love, a star woman teaches. I know his journey and his Star Trek will go on forever. But tell him when he wanders his starry sea. Remember, remember me. Beyond the rim of the star light, my love is wandering in star flight. I know. He'll find in star-clustered reaches. Love, strange love a star woman teaches. I know. His journey ends never our eyes, Star Trek. We'll go on forever our eyes, but tell him. While he wanders his starry sea. Remember, remember me. We hope you enjoyed listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. If you want to find out more about the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, please visit SciFiDinerPodcast.com where you can find show news, pictures, videos, and many other things about the Sci-Fi Diner. You can also find the Sci-Fi Diner where else, Miles? We have a Facebook fan page, and uh, we have very active discussion going on there between uh, Scott and myself and you, the listeners. So I encourage you, please uh, join our Facebook fan page, and let's talk some sci-fi. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash sci-fi diner. You can find me on Twitter. That's uh, Herzog, H-E-R-T-Z-O-G. And I am uh, Son of Worf uh, at Twitter, and I also am uh, on uh, Trek Space, uh, Son of Worf at Trek Space. And, Lee, and we want to hear from you. So please email us at the sci-fi diner podcast at gmail.com or call our listener line at 1-888-508-4343 and let us know your thoughts of what you're watching, what you like, what you don't like. We want to hear from you. You can find more great podcasts at lifestylepodnetwork.com.au.